Please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, to uh, Luke chapter 9. Our passage this morning is uh, chapter 9, verse 51, through chapter 10, verse 16, but I'm just going to start by reading chapter 9, verses 51 to 56. Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56. If you're using uh, the church uh, pew Bible, you'll find that starting on page 868. Beloved saints, this is our God's word to us this morning. Let us give our attention to the reading of it. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Uh, That ends the reading of God's word at this point this morning. Let us pray his blessing upon our time in it. Heavenly Father, eternal God, you've told us that all flesh is like the grass. It's a breath and it's gone. And yet in our hands we hold something eternal, something that was around long before us and will be around long after us, for your word abides forever. Grant that we would give our undivided attention to it and that we would be receptive to all it has to say and that our beliefs, our understanding, and our expectations would all be brought into accord with your word. We ask this in the name of your Son, who is the word made flesh. Amen. You may be seated. Each of us has a struggle with the cross. But you say, Pastor, how can that be? I I love the cross of Jesus Christ. It is more precious to me than my own life. How can you say I have a struggle with it? Well, let me explain. We struggle when people surrender and stop fighting. Sometimes we get angry at them. We might even reject them. We say, how can you quit? How can you give up? Keep going. Because there's something in us that resists giving up the fight, that resists quitting and surrendering. We all want to be optimists. We want to believe that that things will get better, or at least they can get better, if we just figure out the right thing to do. If we work hard, we plan well, we do our research, we want to believe that we can overcome anything. It's that American optimism nurtured on Hollywood movies. And it leaves us believing that there's always a way. There's always a solution. That we can overcome anything. That things will get better. And when they don't, we don't know what to do. We think we failed. Failed God, failed others, failed ourselves. 
Or we think God has failed. Failed to keep his promises. Failed to to make things better. Failed to protect us and love us. And we don't know what to do. We don't know how to process it. And that can lead to despair. And that's what I mean by we struggle with the cross. When God says things aren't going to get better, at least this side of glory. When the time comes to just stop fighting and surrender. When no matter how hard you plan, no matter how much research you do, God says you're just not going to succeed. When you do everything right and still you're rejected. You see, really our problem is this. We think that the cross was for Jesus and not for us as well. We think he surrendered so that we don't have to. That his resurrection means that all suffering is behind us. And yet that misses the nature of Jesus' kingdom. It fails to take seriously his call that we saw a few weeks ago to take up his cross and follow him. It believes that the only way to victory is through the obvious road of success. It fails to grasp that, that, that simple reality that our ministry and our lives must follow the pattern of Jesus' ministry and his life, which, which met with anger and hostility and, yes, rejection. And that's the point that Jesus tries to drive home in our passage today. We're turning a major corner in Luke's gospel. Up until this point, Jesus' ministry has been focused on signs and wonders, healings, resurrections, casting out demons. And there'll be a few more of these signs, but the next several chapters are focused on his message, his teaching. And there's a logic here. The point of the signs of the prophets was to attest their authority. Now that Jesus has established his authority, his focus will be down on his prophetic message. You could really divide Luke up into king, prophet, and priest. We've seen him be king. He rules over creation. Now he's going to be prophet. He's going to teach us, and we'll see his priestly work at the end. He's now going to instruct those who will remain after he is taken away so that they will know how to minister in his absence. In our passage this morning, he begins that instruction by showing us that the gospel message is repulsive to this world and will be rejected by many. Our job is to preach that message, not change the hearts of those who hear it. Our job is to preach Proclaim, not change those who hear it. That's his job, not ours. And my plan is simple. Uh, first, I want to look at Jesus' commitment to the cross and the offense that that was to people who claimed to want to follow him. And then after we do that, we'll look at his instructions to those who take his message to the world and how his cross must shape their ministry. That's really our, our, our simple plan this morning, he said. Uh, But I think that really does summarize this whole passage. 
Luke tells us that when the day drew near to, uh, for him to be taken up, he set his face toward Jerusalem. Now, to be ta- by, by being taken up, Luke is referring to Christ's coming death and ascension into heaven. He's telling us that, that the end is, is near and, and Jesus knows it. So how does Jesus respond? Does, does he, like Jonah, who when he was told to go to Nineveh, turn towards Tarshish and, and run that way? No. Because there's no salvation for us if he will not suffer our punishment in our place. There's no hope of redemption without the cross. There's no victory, no true victory, if he will not surrender himself to the cross. And so Jesus sets his gaze upon Jerusalem, and he says, that's where I'm headed. Because that's the only way to save my people. And so from here on out, he'll be moving toward his appointment with death, his appointment with the cross, and he will not lose focus and he will not take his eye off his calling. That's what Luke means by he set his gaze towards Jerusalem. And with that reality in mind, he sent his disciples ahead of him to a town in Samaria. Now, this is, this is surprising because the Samaritans were those... Um, who during the exile in Assyria, when Assyria had conquered the northern tribes of Israel, who intermarried with the Assyrians. And so when they came back, they had a mixed bloodline. They weren't true Jews in that sense. And and this was the command of God throughout the Old, Old Testament over and over and over again. Do not intermarry. Do not give your sons and your daughters to foreigners. And they had disobeyed God's commands. And all the other Jews hated the Samaritans for it. And yet Jesus continually goes after them and he shows them kindness. He offers forgiveness and salvation to them, not based upon the purity of their blood, but on the brokenness of their hearts. And here he is once again going to them with a a message of, of hope and forgiveness. But as he gets there, they reject him. And why? See what Luke says? He says, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Because, because he was willing to accept the call of the cross. They don't, they're not, they don't reject him because he's standing facing south. That's not it. They reject him because he accepts the call to die for his people. And they want nothing to do with him. They don't want a leader who surrenders, who suffers, who gives up. They want a fighter who can inspire the people to rise up and conquer. But even here, he shows mercy. James and John kindly offer to call down fire from heaven upon this village. And Jesus rebukes them. That's not how he ministers. That's not how his kingdom works. He's not so insecure that he can't handle something like this. And so from here, our text turns its focus on on Jesus calling and sending out laborers. 
And this makes complete sense because if he will soon be taken up from us, if he will soon return to heaven, who's going to continue his work on earth? So for the next few verses, we see what a call to labor for Jesus means. Let me read chapter 9, verse 57 through chapter 10, verse 9. You can follow along. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you. Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus says to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, and he sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So as they're traveling, someone says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus explained what that meant. He and his disciples have no place to call home. They, they wander about. They go to minister, never knowing where they're going to sleep that night or the next. And he says, is that the kind of call you're looking for? This isn't glorious. To another, Jesus says, follow me. And that one wanted to go first and bury his father. And, and, and most agree that this probably meant that the, the man's dad wasn't dead yet. He wanted to wait until his father died, and so he made sure to get his inheritance so that as he followed Jesus, he didn't have to worry about his finances. Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Don't worry about your inheritance. Don't look for security in your finances. Follow me. To another Uh, Another then offered to follow Jesus once he said farewell to those at home. And and Jesus' response was that no one who puts his hand to the plow looks back and looks back as fit for the kingdom of God. Perhaps this is an allusion to, to Lot's wife, who when she left Sodom looked back with longing for her old life and all that she had left behind. What this is about is, is the life that you leave behind It's not about showing kindness to parents or your neighbors. Jesus is saying you can't have a foot in both worlds. Following me is an all or nothing endeavor. You can't love Jesus and love the world. He will not tolerate split loyalties. When you follow him, he demands all you have and all you are. 
And you can see from the first verse in chapter 10 that this is primarily referring to those who are called to, the, to, in, to go into the world and to proclaim the gospel. This is what the call to ministry looks like. Those who seek to get rich off of ministry have misunderstood its nature completely. It's not a call to earthly comfort and wealth. The instructions that follow uh, most clearly uh, relate to those who have been called to ministry, pastors. And yet these instructions affect us all. Because all of us are called to follow Jesus. All of us are called to proclaim him in some way. And so the instructions in verses 3 and following speak to all of us. When Jesus says in chapter 10, verse 3, that uh, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves, it's startling. Who does that? What shepherd says, oh, there's wolves nearby. Open the pen and let the lambs out. They'll be devoured. They'll be destroyed. And that's Jesus' point. His disciples don't go out into the world with a posture of power. They go out in weakness. And they might be devoured. They might be killed. How could it be any other way for those who follow Jesus? How could those who follow the one who set his face toward Jerusalem not also be called to take up their cross? How could those who minister in Jesus' name not have a ministry shaped by his cross? And that's the point here. Christian ministry takes the shape of the cross. It's done in weakness, not power. Not at least power as the world sees it. There's power, but it's not obvious, it's not clear. And the instructions that follow are are meant to bear this out. His disciples weren't to take money, luggage, or even shoes. (laughs) When it says that they were uh, to greet no one on the road, it simply means they're not to get distracted or delayed. When they arrive where they're going, they're they're to proclaim peace. There's a shorthand for proclaiming the gospel, the, the way to peace with God. No tricks, no manipulation, no false promises. Just simply proclaim the truth of God and its beauty and its simplicity. Because those whom God calls will will recognize his voice. They'll respond in faith. You don't have to trick people into believing. Let's face it, you can't trick people into believing. You can trick people into saying they believe, but you can't trick people into believing. But what if they reject you? Well, there's nothing you can do about that. Look at verse 6, 10-6. If the person uh, does not accept or, or receive that gospel of peace, it will return to you. He just means that the gospel is always a blessing to someone. If it doesn't bless those who hear it, it'll still bless those who preach it. Anytime we speak the grace of Christ, we're blessed. Don't be afraid to preach it, he says. Someone's going to be blessed. And then he tells them that they are to be fed by those to whom they minister. 
Quoting the law of Moses, he says, the laborer deserves his wages. So on the one side, he says, people uh, aren't supposed to preach the gospel in order to get rich. On the other side, he says, it's the responsibility of those who benefit from their labors to make sure they're cared for. Notice what the Lord calls them, wages. And that's important. They're being paid for the job that they have done, the job God gave them. Those who feed them are not buying blessings. (laughs) They're not uh, bribing the speaker. It does not give those who feed the preachers the right to dictate what is preached. Because preachers are to proclaim Jesus' kingdom, not the whims of those who feed them. Beloved, when you give your offerings every week, part of what that is, is is obedience to the Lord's command here to provide for those who labor for the kingdom. Finally, those who were sent out were given the power to heal in order to demonstrate their authority. And this continued with the apostles after the resurrection. It's common in the Bible for prophets and apostles to do signs and wonders anytime new scripture is being given. Because the signs and the wonders attest that they speak with the authority of God. It's not the ordinary or perpetual way of things. Let me put it this way. I can pray for you, but I can't heal you, at least until the Lord gives me new scripture. And that's probably never going to happen. The word I preach was given by the apostles and the prophets, and it's already been attested to by the signs and wonders they did. It takes no further authentication. So where does this leave us? Jesus accepted the call of the cross and he set his sights on Jerusalem. He sent out his people as lambs among wolves. He gives them no secret weapons, just the simplicity of the gospel message. Those who preach have no power to change the hearts of those who hear. We don't like this. We want some secret to success. We, we don't want to risk failure and rejection. We don't want to be vulnerable. That's our struggle with the cross. Jesus is saying, I'm sending you out in weakness. You might be devoured, might be rejected. I'm giving you no secret weapons. Go to it. He's saying, your ministry will be shaped by my cross. Now, does that mean there's no human responsibility? Do we just throw up our hands and say, it's all God, there's nothing I can do? Well, not at all. We who have the message of salvation have responsibility to share it. In Ezekiel, uh, God says that if we who have the message don't warn those who are perishing of the coming judgment, their blood is on our hands. Our responsibility is to make sure the truth is proclaimed, to make sure the warnings are given. There's no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. There's no eternal comfort for those who are not all in. And we need to be clear with that message. 
Anyone who sets their hands to the plow and then looks back, anyone with feet in both worlds is not fit for Jesus' kingdom. And our job is to preach that message without compromise, without embellishment, and without confusion. That's our responsibility. It's the responsibility of those who hear it to listen and respond with humility and repentance and faith. The last few verses of our passage are about those who reject the message. Uh, Let me read verses 10 through 16 of chapter 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Jesus says that when the gospel is rejected, his disciples are to shake the dust off their feet and say, know that the kingdom of God has come near. There's a temptation out there to think that if someone is not persuaded by the Christian message, that the messenger has failed. That's like saying that the doc, uh, that's like saying if someone refuses do- the doctor's counsel, that the doctor has failed. The doctor's not the one who's going to die. The one who rejects his counsel is. The rejected preacher must be content to tell the people that they've been warned. And God will remember that they've been warned. Luke will say in just a couple chapters, with much knowledge comes great accountability. This is what he's saying here. He lists out a bunch of Jewish cities. And his point's this. Who do you think will come under greater condemnation? Those who were warned by the prophets and the Messiah and his disciples or those who are far off and had no warnings? In other words, being Jewish doesn't help unless you repent and believe. The same could be said of those raised in the church. You're responsible for how you respond to the gospel, to the Christian message. And so when you hear the call to repent, when you hear about the grace of Jesus Christ, God declares that today is the day to decide. Not tomorrow, not someday. Today he calls upon you to bow your knee, to humble yourself, and to believe. And for those who do, the peace of heaven rests upon them. They know that that perfect bliss of forgiveness and at being at peace with their Creator. They understand what it means to be given eternal life and to be called children of God. 
The stakes could never be higher. How you respond to the gospel message is the most important decision you will ever make in your life. And just to make that clear, Jesus Jesus tells them that the one who hears you hears me. When your message is received, they're not receiving you. They're receiving Jesus. And likewise, those who reject you reject me. And those who reject me reject the one who sent me. He wants to make it clear this is all about Jesus and the hearer. The preacher is incidental. He's just a vessel, just the messenger. This is the beautiful thing about the church. Pastor can die, disappear, and be replaced next week, and the kingdom of God goes on. Because Jesus is here yesterday and today and forever. Those who reject his message aren't rejecting the preacher, but Jesus himself. And those who receive the message aren't receiving the preacher. (laughs) What good is he? They're receiving Jesus, and he's of great good. It's all about Jesus. May we who preach learn that lesson well, and may we get out of the way so that people can see Jesus. We see him in his word. We see him in, in... in, in all that he proclaims and all that Luke and the other apostles have, have recorded for us. And we also see him in the Lord's Supper. Jesus left us with a visible picture of what awaited him in Jerusalem. This is what he set his eyes on, the cross. The bread and the wine are pictures of his body and blood given in death on the cross. This is why he came to offer his life as a sacrifice in the place of sinners because we have no hope without him. And he came to pay our debts so that so we might know forgiveness. Is there any greater news for a guilty conscience than a Savior who says, I will take your punishment for you so that you might have peace and be forgiven? And so nothing matters more than what we do with that reality. The Lord's Supper makes a visible distinction every Sunday between those who have received the grace of Jesus and those who have not. And and as such, it's a preview to the last day when Jesus comes to to judge the world. And, And as a preview, it serves as a warning while there is still time. It calls those who have not repented and says, Today is the day. To those who reject that message, it warns them, You've been warned. And God will remember. But for those who believe, it gives comfort. It declares that the peace of God rests upon you. And that you are no longer a stranger, an enemy, or no longer at odds with God. That you are his child and an heir of his heavenly kingdom. And it tells you what your life work will look like in this world. (laughs) Because the call of Jesus is not to a life of comfort. It's a call to the cross, a call to Jerusalem. So, beloved, let us struggle with the cross no more. Let us turn our faces to Jerusalem. Let us set our hands to the plow and never look back. Let us take up our cross and follow Jesus. And please bow with me in prayer. Our most gracious God,
We thank you that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem and never looked back. Had he looked back, had he had second thoughts, had he sought to protect himself, we would be a people without hope, without rescue, without salvation. Teach us to set our gaze where he set his. Teach us to set our hands to the plow and not look back. Make us more like the Savior we serve. Help us to trust you with our lives. Help us to proclaim your truth faithfully, knowing that it's a blessing just to proclaim your peace. And we ask that you would use the ministry of this church for your glory, that you would do your will in us, we pray. Amen.